What's up? Welcome to the Album of the Day podcast. I'm your host, Ian Hooper. And this show is going to be all about talking about the albums that I listen to Monday through Friday. Uh, The albums are not chosen by me. They're picked and suggested by a random generator website called 1001albumsgenerator.com. I'll put that link in the description for whatever this is uploaded. Um, it takes a list from a book called 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, which is written by Robert Dimry, I think. So basically, this is more of an experiment than anything. Uh, everything I'm going to be saying is entirely my own opinion. I am not anything of an expert on music. I haven't heard anywhere near every album on this list. I just really enjoy music, and I want to document the challenge. So as far as rules are concerned, I have three big ones. One, I can't skip any album. Whatever is recommended to me that day, I gotta listen to it. Two, I can't skip any songs during my listens. And three, I have to listen to the album in its entirety. So with each record, I'm going to talk about my first impressions, my favorite and least favorite tracks, some trivia about the records and the production thereof, and how I would rank it overall out of 10. So with that out of the way, I know for a fact I'm going to make at least one person upset with my opinions this week. I started the list on Tuesday. I have the website set to give me records Monday through Friday, so we're only talking about four this time. First up, Tuesday I listened to The Smashing Pumpkins' Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness from 1995. I grew up listening to a lot of grunge as a teenager. I was very, very angsty. Uh, I listened to a lot of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and even live. (laughs) Those were always playing through my iPod. So, of course, the Smashing Pumpkins were in the rotation. Uh, Even though I listened to them, I really wouldn't consider myself to be a massive fan by any stretch. Uh, The album that I listened to the most was Siamese Dream. And that record still has some of my favorite songs ever written, not just in the 90s or of the grunge era, but just ever. That being said, I've never really listened in depth to Melancholy until Tuesday. I know that's like a sin for people who like rock music, but even greater sin is I honestly wasn't a huge fan of it. Uh, I didn't go into this with nostalgia goggles, like I said, but I did have high expectations because I do have a fondness for the Smashing Pumpkins, which honestly in hindsight probably didn't do me any favors. But Melancholy is the third record from the Smashing Pumpkins. It was supported by singles Bullet with Butterfly Wings, 1979, Zero, Tonight Tonight, Muzzle, and 33. You might be thinking that's a lot of singles, and it's because it is. The album is two hours long. It's 28 tracks. It's so fucking long. (laughs) I still don't understand why it was so long. And this was my very first foray into doing this challenge. It took forever for me to get through this record. And I honestly applaud the ambition. I applaud the scope. The tracks range from very soft, orchestral, beautiful ballads like 1979, which is one of my favorite songs ever written, to fuzzy wall of sound in your face, guitar lick shredding stuff like uh, an ode to no one, which I found out was originally called Fuck You. Pretty great title. Um, Overall, I felt like Melancholy had some very strong offerings, but not enough to justify how bloated it felt and how over the top 
the record feels as a whole. Don't get me wrong. I did have a pretty good experience listening to it, but by the end, I just, all the tracks were bleeding together. It didn't really do anything new or impactful for me. It just, I don't know. It, it felt flat for it being my first real experience with the project, just, you know, sitting down and giving it a proper listen through. Um, so sorry if you're a big fan of this record. <laughs> I know I just kind of shat on it a bit. Um, so favorite tracks. I loved 1979, like I said. 1979 is great. An Ode to No One is great. Here Is No Why. Jelly Belly and Tonight Tonight. Those those songs, they're up there with some of the best Smashing Pumpkins songs they've ever done. Um, my least favorites were the title track, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, um, To Forgive, Love, and Tales of a Scorched Earth. I just, if those had been cut, it would have probably made my experience better. So if you're a fan of those, again, sorry. Um, let's get on to some trivia before I rate it. So apparently there are dozens, dozens and dozens of complete songs that were cut from the final product. And a lot of those ended up showing up on albums that came after Melancholy. Um, you can hear some of those because there was a box set that was released in 1996 called The Aeroplane Flies High. And that had all the promotional singles from Melancholy that I mentioned earlier, plus 30 fully complete songs from the sessions that didn't make the cut of the final record, including one called Pasticcio Medley that contains snippets of more than 70 more cut songs. So this album essentially had some little bits of over 100 songs that were cut from the final 28-track album. That is hours hours and hours of extra music i i just i guess i'm glad that they cut it down to only two but holy shit that is so excessive um the reason why it was so excessive is because billy corgan who is the frontman and singer and kind of mastermind of smashing pumpkins thought that after siamese dream and i think maybe gish came before this i don't remember he thought that the band had run its course by this point and he wanted everyone in the band to approach the record as if it were their last they would ever do before they broke up. So that's probably why there's so much material that was recorded. Everybody was kind of just throwing stuff at the wall. And I don't think it helps the experience at all. I just I think that kind of going into this with some sort of anxiety about, oh, this could be the last thing we ever do as a band. It only served to really hinder their process. That's just my opinion. Um, that's all. But. Outside of, of trivia, I'm very obviously wrong about this record, according to most people, because Melancholy received mostly popular reviews, ranging from around 8 out of 10 or above, and it was nominated for seven Grammys, of which they received one. Not that the Grammys mean anything. I'm not saying the Grammys mean anything. Um, and it debuted at the Billboard Top 200 number one spot. And then it was certified diamond in the U.S., having sold 5 million copies. So people really like this album. I get why people like this album. I, I, I do. It's a good grunge album. It's got some good tracks on it. I just, it felt like a slog to get through it, man. It, it, I wish, I wish I enjoy it more. I really do. I'm not trying to not like this album because I really do like the Smashing Pumpkins, but this, this just wasn't very fun for me to listen to. So all things considered, I'm going to rank this at a 7 out of 10. Um, 
it just feels like it drags on without changing enough for my ears. So I'm sorry if you're a fan and you hate me right now. If it holds up for you and you still consider the majority of the record to be great music, I'm very happy for you. I don't want to take away from that experience at all. Um, if you're going to come and attack me or you're sitting there yelling while you're listening to this, go and listen to the album all the way through. No stops, no skips, and tell me if it's not too long. Seriously. I think you'll think it's too long. Anyway, Wednesday, I listened to probably the most polar opposite of this record imaginable, which was Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run from 1975. So a few things to get out of the way. I have never in my life listened in depth to Springsteen. I wasn't raised with it. My parents, I don't think, are fans of Springsteen, so it wasn't ever playing in our house and I never really felt a drive to jump into his discography. Like I said, I was a grunge kid. I was a punk teenager. I am a rap and hip-hop adult. So I just never really wanted to jump into The Boss. It's just not what I'm into. Um, I went into this with very low expectations because of that. And that's partially because he can get pretty meme for most people. I know that he's kind of, you know... Born in the USA, you know, I everybody has heard that song. I don't know anybody that likes that song. Um, so I had I had low expectations. That being said, I really enjoyed it. I really liked Born to Run. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, it wasn't anything like life changing or anything like that. There's obviously some very cornball moments. Um, but Born to Run has a 39-minute runtime of eight songs that are all pretty solid in their own ways, and that was a much-needed departure from Melancholy, I gotta admit. Going from such a long project with so much material to something that's more short, it's more concise, was great. I, I had a good time with this. Um, and anybody who discredits Springsteen's writing style is wrong. That's my biggest takeaway from this record. These tracks are not like random radio earworms. They are fused with top-notch writing, great instrumentation. It's it's good. They're good songs. It's not my usual style of music by any means, but it still gave me something unexpected and rock solid. Rock solid. So not necessarily the kind of thing that I would revisit and listen to over and over again, but it's definitely not something I would just skip out of spite either. It's It's solid. Um, my favorite tracks from Born to Run are 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Night, Born to Run, and Jungle Land. Um, those are all really good tracks, honestly. They are indicative of, you know, that kind of 1970s Americana type feel. And it, it's it's nice little it's a nice little time capsule. I, I like it for that. If there is a least favorite track for me, I'd say it's probably Backstreets. It just goes on a little too long and it doesn't really do enough changing to keep itself interesting so i wasn't a big fan of that trivia time born to run has been remastered two different times since its release in 1975 most notably in 2014 when the remaster was helmed by the great bob ludwig who has production credits with a few small name artists like you know led zeppelin Jimi hendrix nirvana and queen so the remaster is really good it sounds fantastic uh, it does not sound like anything that was recorded in 1975. It sounds like it was recorded yesterday. It's good. Uh, Bruce Springsteen was given a very large budget by Columbia Records because they thought of this album as somewhat of a final effort 
to have Bruce produce a record that was commercially successful. Because up to that point, he hadn't seen as much success as the label wanted. Bruce Springsteen didn't see enough success for Columbia Records at the time. Maybe he wasn't as popular before this album. That's what I'm assuming. But holy shit. Those are some high expectations. Um, He used the budget that he was given to hone in on the songs that he did have. And it took him over 14 months to record this record. With six of those months spent working on Born to Run, the track itself. Six months on one song. In promotion for the album, Columbia Records began calling Bruce Springsteen the future of rock and roll, which was something that he hated because he got a lot of news outlets and whatever. They were questioning if Springsteen had earned all the hype that was surrounding him at that time. And the hype did actually taper off quickly. It left the Billboard charts after 29 weeks, which I know you're probably thinking that's a really long time to be on the Billboard charts. But to be so popular for so long and then suddenly it's gone... That's that's a pretty steep drop off. Not that the record has lost any popularity. It's obviously still uh, fans consider it his best record, apparently. So speaking of the charts, Born to Run debuted at number 84 on the Billboard charts. Then it skyrocketed to number eight the following week, number four the week after that. And then it peaked at number three the week after that. Critical reception was heavily favorable, earning 9 out of 10s and above by nearly every outlet, and Born to Run was also certified six times platinum in the U.S. at 6 million sales. I think it is the second most popular record I listened to this week. So given that it's not my usual music taste, but it's somehow won me over, I am tempted to rate this higher, but I'll give it a solid 8 out of 10 overall. It's a good record, and it definitely accomplishes what it set out to do. It made Bruce Springsteen commercially viable. It absolutely nailed what it was going for. So if you're skeptical, believe me, I was really fucking skeptical, but I liked the album. It was fun. Go give it a listen. Thursday, I was recommended Radioheads in Rainbows from 2007. I have never been a Radiohead fan, ever. That's not like I don't like Radiohead. It's just that their popularity was before I really considered myself to love music for the most part. In Rainbows came out when I was nine years old. Okay, and by the time I had entered college, everybody was telling me how amazing they were. So I just sort of put off ever getting into their music. Don't get me wrong. I I knew Creep and I knew High and Dry probably from like a Dawson's Creek episode or something. But only High and Dry really had an effect on me. That's one of the songs that I I do really love from Radiohead's discography. Um, Listening to In Rainbows on Thursday made me regret avoiding them ever. Holy shit. Right at the start of this record, I was enthralled by the musicianship, the performances, the production, the vocals and the lyrics, everything everything and it all stayed true the entire 42 minute 10 song runtime i I, each new song brought something new did a new element changed up the style the song structure whatever and it all felt cohesive through the whole project somehow i i can't really comprehend how they pulled that off it's so good there wasn't a single time during my listen that I felt put off by anything they did. Each new song, honestly, honest to God, made me kind of tilt my head. 
and wonder where they were going with that particular sound. And then the payoff was nearly always as satisfying each time. I cannot stress to you enough how much I enjoy this album. It's so good. And I know this is probably not a surprise for people who have been fans of Radiohead. You're probably sitting there like, okay, well, this guy's lost all credit, all credibility because he obviously doesn't know shit if he doesn't know Radiohead. Dude, I, it was before my time. That's the only excuse I have. I'm sorry I didn't pay them attention before now because I'm paying them attention now. The thing that I like most about the record is that all of the ideas are fresh and they're further compacted by the fact that nothing ever wears on you the whole time you listen. There's no element of In Rainbows that overstays its welcome. Like, uh, for instance, at the end of the song Reckoner, there's a refrain at the end where the guitar plays something you didn't hear on the rest of the track. And it lasts, I counted, it lasts 25 seconds before it starts to fade out with the song. And it is still one of the best parts of the entire track. Still. Everything is done expertly from the instrumentation and the songwriting all the way down to the production. It's it's flawless, honest, honestly. Um, and this is probably partially due to the fact that the day before, while I was listening through Born to Run, that record did wear on me slightly because of how formulaic the songwriting was. I don't think I mentioned that enough when I was talking about it. It did wear on me a bit. Um, in Rainbows, my brain did a flip at some moments. Like... It, it totally subverted my expectations, but none of the artistic choices ever feel out of place. It all works, and I'm so glad it does. I am tempted to say that this is Radiohead's magnum opus, but I haven't heard enough from them to make that distinction, so I plan on finding out by listening to their other material. If nothing else, this album made me a Radiohead fan. God, it's good. If you've been putting off Radiohead like I have... Because I know I'm not alone in the world for that. I have quite a few friends that are like, I don't really want to get into Radiohead. You know, everybody knows a Radiohead fan, and they're always talking about Radiohead. You know, it's it's a meme in of itself. If you've been putting it off, genuinely, just go listen to it. Don't tell anybody that you're listening to it. Just go. And it might profoundly affect you, because it profoundly affected me. My favorite tracks from In Rainbows are House of Cards. Body Snatchers, Weird Fishes, All I Need, Reckoner, and Jigsaw Falling Into Place. But every track is great. I can't say there's a single one I didn't like. Not a single one. I, I liked or loved all of the tracks I heard on this listen-through. It, it's fantastic. Um, I have a lot of trivia for this one, so let's get into it. In Rainbows was the seventh Radiohead record, and it was self-released in October 2007 under a pay-what-you-want model on their website. So fans could literally get the whole record downloaded for free officially before it even had a physical release in December. They had just had their record contract end in 2003 with EMI, and this was their first release since. The band said that they just really needed to take a break after a six-year record contract. So that break did end up serving to hinder them a little bit, though. At the beginning of the recording sessions in 2005, frontman Tom York said that the sessions were slow, unconfident, and frustrating. The band, according to him, even nearly broke up. So they started out um, producing the album themselves and recording it themselves, and then they ended up switching producers to a guy named Spike Stent, and he's responsible for some of Bjork and U2's material. 
He heard the songs that they had recorded professionally themselves and produced themselves in a million-dollar studio and simply said, quote, the sounds aren't good enough. <laughs> so the collaboration with Stent was not successful. The band changed producers again to Nigel Godrich, which is the most British name of all time. He ended up producing a few of their albums before. I don't remember which ones off the top of my head. Um, and some of the sessions that they did with Godrich were recorded at a place called Tottenham House in Wiltshire really british words today and the band stayed in trailers because the house was so worn down like rain would come through the ceiling during sessions there were window panes missing there were creaky floorboards and holes in the floorboards the house was run down and that's where they recorded it and so kind of having that imagery in your head while you listen to it it actually lends a lot to the experience after i read some of this trivia or during when I was reading a lot of this trivia, I was listening to it for a second time, and it it conjures that image of a worn down house. You can you can tell that they recorded a lot of that material in there. Radiohead did initially record sixteen songs for In Rainbows, but they felt that their previous effort was too long, and they whittled it down to the ones that they liked most. Something that Tom York called a forty five minute statement. Something that rock and roll was missing at the time. He felt. Radiohead recorded a group of local school children clapping for the opening track 15 Step, but realized that the kids were shit at clapping on time, so they recorded them cheering instead. Finally, last piece of trivia. Tom York said that the lyrics for In Rainbows were inspired by anonymous fear, saying that the album was about, quote, the fucking panic of realizing you're going to die and that anytime soon I could possibly have a heart attack when I next go for a run, close quote. Now, for critical and commercial reception, In Rainbows sold 3 million copies worldwide less than a year after its digital release. But it is really difficult to find accurate sales numbers because of the online market. And some sources even say that only 100,000 copies sold in the U.S. So I'm just going to go with 3 million worldwide. For whatever reason, the RIAA, which are the people that certify uh, sales for records and stuff and award like gold and platinum and diamond records and stuff... They have a really hard time counting digital sales. It's interesting. So I think because this was very much so a record right at the beginning of the digital age of music and torrenting and stuff like that, they don't have accurate sales numbers. The lowest score that I could find for it, uh, review score, was an 88 out of 100 on Metacritic. So that should tell you that it, it's it's a pretty solid album. Um, like Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. This is just one that clicks with me a little bit more. And I'm... It impacted me deeply. It's the kind of record that I know I'm going to find myself going back to for repeat listens. I already have. I've listened to it three times <laughs> since Thursday. Uh, overall, I think it scores a 9.5 out of 10, though that score is bound to change the more I listen to it. I'm keeping it a 9.5 out of 10 for safety. I don't know if I can comfortably or morally give it a 10 on our first week. But maybe I'll revisit it and say that, yeah, it's a 10 or maybe it'll go down to a 9. I don't know. 9.5 out of 10 feels right for right now. Moving on. Friday. Today, the day that I'm recording this, I listened to Frank Sinatra's Songs for Swinging Lovers from 1956. So if that doesn't tell you that I didn't choose this list, I don't know what does. This is a very random list of albums, but I enjoyed all of them in their own way. Um... Everybody knows who Frank Sinatra is. Everybody does. We've all watched movies set in the 50s and 60s and heard the songs. We've all seen at least one gangster film. 
you know Frank Sinatra. And I knew what I was in for before I started listening, and I got exactly what I expected. It's lounge music. It's jazz. It's a shit ton of covers of songs that you've heard dozens of times from other artists. That doesn't mean it's bad. That being said, I think I have some unpopular opinions about this record in particular. And when I did some research, I found some pretty interesting stuff about this album. So here are my notes. First of all, the record starts super strong and then just kind of tapers off until you get to Making Whoopi, which is I, I think is the third or fourth to last song on the record. Right at the top, though, you have the first three tracks, which are You Make Me Feel So Young. Everybody knows that one. It Happened in Monterey. And You're Getting to Be a Habit with Me. All three of those, fucking spectacular. Spectacular. It makes you want to go out, find a lover, and dance under the moonlight. They're beautiful songs. They're fantastic. Um, Those three are definitely the highlights of the record. The version I found on Spotify of Songs for Swingin' Lovers is a remaster from 1998, though there are a few shortcomings. There's a few instances of very obvious artificial studio reverb at the tail end of a few songs. Like, that kind of distracted me a little bit. I know that's nitpicky, but seriously, if if nothing else, listen to the songs with headphones in. Wait until the last few seconds and tell me if you don't notice that weird fake reverb sound. It's, it's kind of off-putting. And I noticed it was enough for me to, like, kind of shake my head like, did I just hear that? And then it happened a few more times. I was like, yeah, that that must be the remaster. So it's it's a little bit weird. Just trust me. Um, there's also some pretty clear digital loss at some parts. Like maybe the files of... I'm sure that it was recorded on tape. Maybe it didn't transfer perfectly to digital. Because um, you can definitely hear some like bit crushing happening. That's kind of weird. Um, that put me off a little bit too. It does sound like it's a torrent on some parts, especially when Sinatra sings a little too loud and makes the mic peak. It, it just sounds a little weird. Um, so maybe if I were to listen to the original, I, I would enjoy it more. I don't know. Um, the record is absolutely a window into a time that probably none of us have experienced. My grandparents didn't really like Frank Sinatra as much as other singers like Dean Martin and Bing Crosby, so I wasn't super familiar with Sinatra's versions of these songs. And given that it's so old, some of the lyrics really don't hold up. On You Brought a New Kind of Love to Me, Frank says, I'm the slave, you're the queen. I get what he's trying to say, but eh, yikes, there's better ways to do so. I'm not going to cancel Frank Sinatra or anything like that. It's just something that, you know, I was sitting there and kind of pulling up my collar like, okay. Um, I think the strongest part of the whole record for me was the instrumental breakdown in the middle of Too Marvelous for Words. Ooh, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. And whoever was playing the bass is playing like a fucking madman. It's so good. And then right after that song, Old Devil Moon comes on. I really didn't like that song. Um, didn't do my, anything for me, really. And then Pennies from Heaven, which if you're familiar with the greatest version of that song, the Louis Prima version that you hear in Elf, you're going to hate Frank Sinatra's version. You just will. To be fair, though, Louis Prima's song came out the year after this album did, but it is simply just the best version. The Louis Prima version, spectacular. It's so good. Um, The middle of this album is pretty boring. It dragged for me a bit. Some of the songs blend together a lot. I did think the song Anything Goes was funny. He talks about how in the olden days, before 1956, 
that, a glimpse of a stocking was shocking. And nowadays, anything goes. That's like the the hook of the song. But that isn't true at all by today's standards. So I thought that was kind of funny. Like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about anything goes? There's dames wearing short sleeves. Like, I, it was just kind of kind of goofy in hindsight. But anyway, let's get into favorites. I loved the three opening tracks, as I said. But I also really liked making Whoopi and swinging down the lane. My least favorites are Old Devil Moon and Pennies from Heaven, but that one's not really fair because I am spoiled by that Louis Prima version. If if you haven't heard that version, look up Pennies from Heaven, click the Louis Prima version, and thank me later. You're going to love it. It's a great song, like, objectively. It's not even like, oh, it's kind of weird, you know, the shoop-dee-doop-dee part. It, it's just good. It, I don't know. That song's written perfectly. Um Love is Here to Stay is also not great. I wasn't really into it. Uh, it is interesting that this record has a lot of Sinatra's biggest hits, including I've Got You Under My Skin and You Make Me Feel So Young. So, of course, you have those to look forward to during listening. Um, upon some research, I did see that fans of Frank Sinatra do consider this and the record before this to be the best Frank Sinatra record. So this is like the era where he was at his peak. Right, on to some trivia. Pennies from Heaven, we're talking about that song a lot today, that's been covered by everyone. It was originally written in 1936 by Arthur Johnson and Johnny Burke, and the first version was recorded by Bing Crosby. Since then, it's been recorded by Doris Day, Tony Danza, Louis Armstrong, Dave Brubeck, Regis Philbin, and of course Frank Sinatra. Uh, Songs for Swingin' Lovers was the 10th album from Frank Sinatra. He did 10 albums by this point. And like I said earlier, fans thought that this one and the one before it, his ninth and 10th album, were the best ones he released. Nuts. Songs for Swingin' Lovers was arranged by Nelson Riddle, who took a very different approach to this record following Sinatra's last album, which is called In the Wee Small Hours, by recording existing songs in what he called a hipper fashion. So more upbeat, a little more, you know, tongue-in-cheek. The songs are about, I mean, they're about fucking. They're about, you know, seduction and and getting dirty by 1950-whatever terms. Um, There was a 16th song that was recorded and ultimately cut because they thought it was too slow for the album and it intended to be upbeat with this record. I'm not sure how they considered some of these songs to be upbeat, but I guess that's a sign of the time. Um, For popularity, the album actually did best in the UK compared to the US. It peaked at the number two spot here, in the states and somehow only certified gold having sold 500,000 copies maybe those numbers are way wrong but that's what i could find the two professional reviews that came out in its time ranked at five out of five stars of course so for me i put this at a solid eight out of ten i know you're probably thinking if you're a smashing pumpkins fan again that i ranked this higher than the smashing pumpkins record but it's good it's good yeah with all the history behind it considered it's it's a solid record Um, It's Frank Sinatra. It met my expectations. It didn't let me down. It didn't blow my mind like In Rainbows did. It's just a solid record. Um, It has some great songs on it that are pretty solidly timeless, and its popularity is fully understandable. I get why people think it's one of the best albums of the 1950s. You'd be hard-pressed to find a lot of better material. It's, It's just really good. So, Given that I only had four records to listen to this week, I wanted to throw in a fifth that I was listening to as well. Obviously, I'm not just listening to one, you know, less than hour album a day. Um, 
my commute is an hour in of itself. And on days that I go to school and work, I'm driving for nearly two hours on those days. So that's twice a week plus weekends. So I listen to music outside of just this, you know, the record I was assigned each day. And the one I wanted to highlight that I was listening to a ton is a record called Visions of Bodies Being Burned. (laughs) It's by a group called Clipping. Um, They are a horrorcore experimental rap group with lots of uh, industrial and noise rock, I guess, elements infused. Clipping is comprised of rapper David Diggs, who is of Hamilton fame. So if you're a fan of Hamilton, I'm not so much. But if you like Hamilton, this might freak you out a little bit because it's very different from anything I think David has done before. And there's also producers Jonathan Snipes and William Hudson. The record is so good. It was released on October of 2020 and is one of the most effectively haunting, musically interesting, and just downright energetic record I've heard in such a long time. It's so good. Uh, They're not everyone's cup of tea. Not by a long shot. They are a part of a very niche genre. But if you're a fan of horror or you're a fan of hip-hop or you're a fan of both, you might just really fall in love with this album. There's nothing conventional about what Clipping does. From David's evocative and intensely dark lyricism to the noisy and foreboding beats from Snipes and Hudson... You get a really perfect marriage of styles that I feel like is listening to a satanic ritual. (laughs) Clipping describes this record as 16 more scary stories disguised as rap songs. And it's they accomplished what they set out to do. They they made some scary stories disguised as rap songs. Um, Visions of Bodies Being Burned was originally planned to be the second half of 2019's There Existed an Addiction to Blood. That record leaned into themes of vampires and monsters and visions of bodies being burned focuses more on like devil babies and slasher movies and stuff like that. It's really cool. So if you're looking for an introduction to the socially conscious, experimental and deeply intelligent hip hop project, watch their recent KEXP at home performance on YouTube. Um, I'll try and link it in the description. It's it's fantastic. It's so good. They do everything so unconventional. David does it all in one take he doesn't stop at any moment he's just chilling the whole time doing his his uh lyricism and his it's like reciting poetry on his end because his enunciation is so impeccable the dude is a he's a fucking he's a star he's a star i'm kind of in love with him a little bit um and then snipes and hudson they just they are so endlessly entertaining while you watch it they aren't the kind of producers that are just going to sit there and hit a space bar or, or tweak a few knobs on a DJ board or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's so cool to watch them because they have these like metal plates out and they're hitting them with mallets and creating weird noises to kind of bring this sort of foreboding feeling to the songs. And at one point, I, I don't know who is who of Snipes and Hudson, admittedly, but at one point, one of them grabs a full balloon and holds it up to a microphone that's overhead and just slowly lets the air out like it's a, like a tiny little squealing in the background. I laughed, but it was also scary to hear. It's just so cool to watch them. They do such interesting things. I, I watched a few interviews with them after finding that KEXP at home uh, performance. And they talked a little bit about some of their shows, which 
I'm sure are so much fun. And I, I can't wait until, you know, everything's back to normal and I can go see them live because I'm definitely going to try to. But they talk about how they're super unconventional with their beats. And one of them sticks a microphone into a like metal box that's full of nails and shakes it on stage. So they're really fun to watch. It's it's just kind of wacky and, and interesting. And it's the kind of thing that you may have never heard before. So go watch the KEXP at home performance if you're interested or if you don't really like live shows or anything like that. I know some people aren't super into live music. Go listen to the song Say the Name right now. It's the second track on Visions of Bodies Being Burned and it is, oh my God, it might be one of my favorite songs I've heard of of all 2020, 2021. It's fantastic. So Visions is great and Clipping is steadily proving that they are making some of the freshest and most interesting music in all of hip hop. Go check it out. Um, that's all I have for this week. You can find the link to the album, a day generator in the description alongside my social media handles. If I made you upset or you have an opinion that, um, you know, or I have an opinion that you strongly disagree with. I'd love to hear why. Honestly, I I did this podcast because I really like talking about music. That's it. I don't think anyone's going to listen to this. I just like doing it. I like kind of chronicling the challenge and what I'm doing. I'm nothing of an expert. I just love this shit. It's fun. So thank you for listening. I hope I see you next week with another five or maybe six albums. I I really like talking about clipping in this. So maybe I'll talk about a record that I was listening to in between the ones I got suggested. Um, Anyway, stay safe. See ya.